0: Hello, and welcome to Biofilm Podcast. This is a show where I interview biomedical and life science professionals and ask them about their career, opinions about current events or thought-provoking topics, and their taste in movies or TV.
1: You know, traveling from a young age, seeing seeing the impact of international education as early as five or six years old, I certainly wanted to, to go abroad, work abroad, study abroad, and eventually wanted an inexpensive MBA uh, where where I met you.
0: Hello, and welcome to Biofilm Podcast, a weekly show that brings you to the forefront of biomedical research, biotech, pharma, and healthcare fields, and the professionals behind it. I'm your host, Pavel Rojov. My guest today is Elias Whitman, an international business consultant, whose experiences range from working with United Nations and antibody provider cell signaling technology a biotech trade association in Boston, MassBio, and now Sanyu bio a CRO. He also lived and worked in China and Germany, where we've met, attending rhein Reinzig University of Applied Sciences. On this episode, we will find out about his broad international professional experience, and unique perspective it provides. Also, whether he prefers to play four, five, or six-string bass guitar.
1: Welcome to the <laughs> podcast, Elias. Um... So, first question, uh, four string for sure. Although I, it's funny, I, I had a five string bass, and uh, uh, you know, for for the meme or something, maybe I liked Primus. I liked like that low low end. But if you find out as as you get older, the more simpler you'll play. Uh, when you're young, you kind of look at these videos of you know having all these pedals and racks, and uh, as I find myself uh, getting back to the four string and just playing, you know, something. You know within the first five to seven frets and just keeping it simple um but i will say during quarantine i've started to learn how to play guitar and i'm not very good but i'm learning learning the basics and uh, it's something i've been wanting to do because i've been playing bass since i was 12 and um you know everyone's picking up new hobbies so it's it's a good time
2: yeah i, c- I could definitely relate to uh, picking up new hobbies like this is definitely one, one of them so uh, yeah. I guess my, re- my recurrent segment on the podcast is to ask my, my guests about uh, their favorite film or something like a TV that they watch. But for you, I want, I- I'm kind of going to challenge you a little bit. What's your maybe favorite movie soundtrack that you can, you know, that, st- that sticks in your head?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, this is, this is a deep cut. So uh, movie soundtrack has to be it's called Diva. It's a French film. It came out in 1981. And there's an opera uh, track that that's beautiful it's called uh, La Wally and um, yeah The Diva is the film I don't want to get the the French director's name incorrect um, but it's it's a phenomenal film independent French film and the whole premise of the, of the movie is um, a famous opera singer who's never been recorded before and there's a courier who sneaks in this very oh this is 1981 mind you it's like this hyper analog you know just just Maybe it's an A track, but it's all cassette, Mm -hmm. and he records it, and then gets chased down by this um, French mafia. And it's 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 a beautiful film, and uh, it sticks out.
2: So um, I guess uh, going to the maybe if not nineteen eighties, but something along those lines. Your professional journey, you know, you took so many different choices in terms of going to um, you know China, Germany, a bunch of different uh, places. And where did the fascination for you? start in terms of I want to go and visit you know around the world was that some somewhere along the lines of your childhood or this is something that you developed at a later stage?
1: Yeah you you hit the nail on the head childhood so I grew up in a very scientific household. Um, My father is a professor of marine ecology and um, I was on sabbatical you know in the early 90s actually went to first grade in New Zealand. Um, It was like a hybrid Kindergarten. I kind of like skipped kindergarten and went directly to first grade, mm-hmm. and I like to kind of credit that as kind of jumpstarting my education because, on the one hand, and I don't mean to knock the American um, kindergarten system, but it wasn't as rigorous. Um, when I when I got to to, to Dunedin, um, I was learning, uh, you know, uh, edition and reading short books, and we had swimming lessons, and we learned how to play cricket. And this was just at public school, you know, nothing fancy, and they expected a lot more work than what was. Um, you know required I think in the United States and I think that set me up for success Um, but that's exactly why you know I was privileged to travel a lot with my father over the years he's been doing um, research in the Galapagos Islands uh, Mm -hmm. for about 20 years and um, I've um, partake on some of those trips as a assistant um, scuba diver doing ecological transects. It's not very glamorous work. We Mm -hmm. essentially put down uh, 30 meters of transect tape and um, make notes on um, abundancy of certain species and then use that data to make inferences about the overall vitality of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting. So absolutely, um, you know, traveling from a young age, seeing, seeing the impact of international education as early as five or six years old, I certainly wanted to, to go abroad, work abroad, study abroad, and eventually wanted an inexpensive MBA uh, where where yeah. I met you in, yeah. a, in Rheinbach. Yeah, Germany.
2: yeah. I, we'll we'll definitely get to that. I I did know you actually had a chance to be in New Zealand, and I have to I guess uh, t- take a stand here. I can't believe you your your favorite movie soundtrack is not lord of the rings because like that's my favorite destination to go to i mean i'm i'm super jealous that you actually had a chance to go there
1: (laughs) you know the the soundtrack i that's the thing though i can't i mean as as epic as those films were um the soundtrack i can't like put my finger on it you know there's something like people would say oh it's titanic you know because there's the celine Dion song that people really think about um but no, I really like the scoring. I think of older movies. I think they try to um, rely more on you know drama that could be brought in and emotions from the soundtrack, uh, you know, because cinematography was a lot um, I don't want to say simpler, but they had less tricks that that are done in uh, modern film, yeah and. Uh- uh,
2: I was, I was curious in terms of your upbringing, as you say, your know, your father
1: was, uh, was an expert marine ecologist. So. Still is sort is of- 67. So- he hasn't retired yet, although he had his last grad student and it's a shame, you know, with, um, with, uh, universities being at, they are right now, mm-hmm. um, the quarantine things, um, it's challenging because, you know, some of his students, you know, can't go to graduation and, you know, they can't see each other. Yeah. And, um, He's really done an excellent job fostering the growth of young scientists and um, bringing them down with him to do uh, field research in the Galapagos as well. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's something to be said for that because really putting a lot of faith in uh, you know 18, 19, and 20 year old students, uh, you know, to to take a lot of that work and they they develop really strong relationships. Um, you know, full disclaimer, any sort of field research is dangerous, whether you're doing, um, you know, sociological research in a conflict area or doing humanitarian disaster relief and doing some sort of, you know, world aid or, or kind of UN work. Mm-hmm. Um, but any sort of field transects and what you're doing underwater research is, is, is difficult and dangerous. And mm-hmm. you certainly form, I won't say military grade camaraderie. But there's definitely a, a sense of camaraderie that um, anyone kind of bonds when when you're in a situation in which you could potentially um, die, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, in that type of of, of of area. It's certainly not um, certainly not as cut and dry as you know the business realm um, that I'm currently operating in. There's no there's no risk of, of shark attack or <laughs> running out of oxygen. Um, you know, and I'm doing biotech consulting. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I'm, I'm sure I, I could sense you had, you have this like keen sense of adventure almost. And now you've sort of transitioned into something that maybe lacks that. And I feel like you, you're you missing that <laughs> to some extent.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, I think, I think you're right. Um, I think that uh, on the one hand, I've certainly been interested in, um, in life sciences. Especially with some of the opportunities that are provided, less on the medicine side, but more on like bioag, and I personally have gotten full three sixty from you know my personal stance on GMOs, and I think that there's a lot of really uh, wonderful um, uh, ways to utilize GMO technology to to deal with resource scarcity. I think a lot of what's going on with uh, beyond meat and thinking more about you know, the resource use and how to sustain um, sustainable food production. I think um, a lot of the bio-ag space is really interesting. Went to a conference two years ago at MIT, um, and uh, it was really, really, really fascinating. There was a man from from University of, uh, what was it? Somewhere in in Massachusetts in Worcester, and he was using um, the cellular scaffolding of a spinach plant and pumped blood through it and then was able to replicate it in a way to create um a structure for bovine tissues to grow on i just I just it's, that stuff is really fascinating because you know truth be told i don't know a lot about um oncology i know about you know the the antibodies and how they're how they're created because i worked in facilities but when you start taking these um, ideas that are incredibly esoteric for the Lays person, I certainly consider myself still a Lays person, although I've been biotech for five years, and you start thinking of the application in food, and, um, you know, sustainable, you think everyone can latch on to. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting to hear about those breakthroughs firsthand. And, and even seeing them on the menu, I had my first impossible Whopper or something like that uh, through a promotion at Burger King of all places. <laughs> and that's something that I never even thought about, um, you know, as an adolescent. Impossible tastes
2: tastes kind of nice, I have to say. I'm it's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. So, uh, so would you say that uh, you your career trajectory may take you uh, to Bayer, for example, at some point?
1: Funny you say that. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm actively uh, viewing some of their vacancies. I'm really looking for an opportunity in which. I can, you know, tap into some of those language skills as well as um, you know, my passion for science, sustainability, and um, efficient operations and lean management in, in a way that's gonna, gonna bring it to the next level. It could be seen as an adventure, it could just be seen as a natural evolution. And I'm getting older, there's things that motivate me now, like having a house and having land mm-hmm. and you know, not always just riding to work on my bicycle like I did in China, like I did in Germany like I was doing in Massachusetts. So there's just that natural progression in which your know, life's adventure can be redefined less in terms of the risks and more in terms of where you wanna be in the next 15 to 20 years. In terms of
2: your trajectory, your life trajectory, obviously one of the big chunks of your life and maybe in some way you could say it was very uh, instrumental in shaping who you are was spent in China. So can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Like what prompted you to
1: go there? of all places and uh, what was your experience like? So, um, I always like to say that I was never supposed to go to China. It, it uh, erupted in a kind of strange turn of events. Um, initially, I had a study abroad program with a strong focus on social sciences that was gonna bring me to Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, mm-hmm. India, and in New Zealand. And uh, there was a large uprising in um, in Mexico, in Oaxaca. And uh, there was some violence there and the program was canceled. And so I, I had already planned for that. I wasn't registered at the University of Vermont where I was. So I went to university in-state in Rhode Island and they had an honors colloquium and because I'm interested in macro environmental policy and thinking of public-private partnerships and uh, you know the nexus of relationships between nonprofit organizations Government and non-government agencies like the UN working on development, as well as the private sector, and you know working on responsibility approaches, which was later my topic of my master's thesis. But you know, back to square one, um I started studying Chinese, and I you know really wanted to to learn more. And, and uh, I'll preface that by saying that I have a book written about these experiences, as well as um, the the kind of strange dichotomy of foreign life in China in early uh, 2008 to 2012, in an era that hadn't seen the modernization under um, Xi Jinping. And uh, it's called Lao Wai, L-A-O-W-H-Y, and it's available on Amazon. And uh, that chronicles kind of the lives of uh, folks who lived in different sociological niches. It's uh, ethnography. Um, But the work I was doing in China Um, was mostly reconstruction after the Sichuan earthquake that happened on May 12th, uh, 2008. And it was a really pivotal moment for my development because on the one hand I had spent at that time about three years um, of my undergraduate studying uh, reconstruction, uh, disaster relief, anthropology, environmental studies, and then I was put in a situation in which I was the project coordinator for relief work and on my first trip to the disaster area i had a i had a volunteer actually fall through a roof and um, she wasn't severely injured but i was responsible for that um, you know taking her to the hospital on the very first trip and it was amazing i mean she was you know ready to come back the next week we we're just glad she hadn't injured herself in a, in a severe way mm-hmm. um, But I saw it as an opportunity to try to do some research of my own and I was interested in understanding the impacts that the the earthquake had on indigenous culture. Um, Where the earthquake happened was the center of the Tiang um, indigenous group and um, I was curious to understand if the children were learning their, their traditional language and what they were doing with some of their handicrafts and because there's already a lot of um, pressure right now for for young people and young indigenous people all across the world, um, you know, leave their hometowns, go to university, but even more so in a disaster situation where you now have Habitat for Humanity, you know, the Red Cross, the Chinese Red Cross, um, other organizations coming in, what that impact had on a small, um, one could say fragile um, indigenous culture and society. Um, but, but after that, I, I found work um, as a public relations manager for a group called Giving Hand. They were uh, sponsored by Bola Associates, which is um, a headhunting HR uh, recruitment firm based in Hong Kong. And it was really interesting work because um, think of that as made in China, give back to China. So what they did. Was reached out to companies that had production, uh, mostly apparel companies, but we also work with Walmart, Home Depot, and um, we would source surplus products that they couldn't sell because it was a change in season. For example, if it was winter or just approaching winter in in um, October and November, they may have had you know surplus summer clothing and. Unfortunately, you know, the trend is, is to save money and to really incinerate or, or you know, remove some of these from your inventory. And we sought means to um, acquire the products, provide free logistics, and then um, source them to um, impoverished regions in Western China that could have actually used those products. So it was kind of like freeganism on a large scale. And we were able to work with these multinational corporations and provide some good press for them. And that was a really interesting opportunity because on the one hand, I was under 25. So legally in China, it was challenging for me to get a working visa. And my boss was Mm -hmm. over 65. So in the government's eyes, she was too old to get a visa. And the two of us were there working with uh, two or three um, native Chinese. And uh, we were able to have a large impact. (laughs) And that was really exciting, and um, I was glad to do that work. And after that, I came back to the United States. I worked as a substitute teacher for a year, and then I went to Germany for grad school.
2: And uh, the rest yeah, is history. It's, it's, it's interesting to, to really hear that a lot of the experiences that you had in, in China maybe almost prompted you to, to go further into the maybe business realm in a way because a lot of those so- social, social issues that you were... This describing really uh, have a have a, an underlying business uh, problem or business, you know, underpinning that needs to be investigated and sort of yeah. understood maybe on the local level and on the global level. So, uh, how did really the decision for you to go to Germany for an MBA really came came around? I mean, what was that really prompted by? Why
1: Germany? Why not America? Uh, number one, cost. <laughs> Uh, I think uh, everyone who's watching will understand the uh, uh, prohibitive cost, I think, for, for um, higher education in the United States, which um, thankfully is now um, being discussed widely thanks to the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, both campaigns, oh, keep in touch, we ran twice. Um, but I, I, was, I was interested in something that was a bit more um, I guess off the beaten path than a traditional business school. Plus, I didn't want to take, um, you know, the GMATS, and and um, I did take the GREs, uh, but that wasn't required uh, for school in Germany. And I started I started researching, and it it, it, just, it just happened. happened. That the school in um, in Rheinbach had a program that had a, a, spe- a specific focus on. Corporate social responsibility, nonprofit management, and it sounded too good to be true, uh, because um, that's exactly what I was looking for. I'd, I'd worked for nonprofits. I saw the challenges of working for nonprofits because, on the one hand, you have all these grand ideas. You need funding, so you're, you're, on your you need um, support from large corporations in order to get your work done. Well, why not try to get that work done for within the confines of the corporation? Um, you know, there's companies like Tom's Shoes, mm-hmm. which their CSR department is basically, you buy a pair of shoes from us at a retail shop, and for every pair of shoes sold, you know, we will donate a pair of, of shoes uh, to, to a child uh, throughout the world you know, that, that needs it. Despite geography, they're working all over the world. Um, and that's kind of what, what really attracted me about this program. You know, We had a specific focus on corporate social responsibility. Um, the program itself uh, definitely had some growing pains. It was not the smoothest experience, um, but I was really glad to have um, been able to work for the UN for a month um, as a, a trans, not some, well, I could say a translator because I did um, registration services in several languages. Um, German being um, but I remember printing out the badge uh, for the delegation from Costa Rica. And they were they were just very excited that that I could speak Spanish with them. You know that that type of contact I think is really um, warm and welcoming when we're talking about you know working together on to, to create climate change goals. Um, but also uh, the program there allowed me to work with Dr. Uwe Holtz, who works for the United Nations uh, Center uh, to Combat Desertification, and. Um, He really challenged me to expand the scope of my master's thesis, not only to focus on public-private partnerships, but also on corporate social responsibility approaches in the means to address eco-cities, desertification, and waterworks within the People's Republic of China. So um, it was uh, quite the magnum opus. I ended up finishing that here in the United States while I was um, working for cell signaling technology And I remember riding my bicycle to a coffee shop in Harvard Square, printing out three copies of my master's thesis for $80 and then mailing it to Germany. And it was very, um, sad in a way because my master's thesis was done. There was no high five from Uwe. There was no, um, graduation ceremony. Um, you know I was told they'd be published that they weren't published but um it, I, I poured so much sweat and tears into it and I'd like to think that that um it would be read or circulated and you know that's my fault in a way too um you know I should try to push to get some of it published um but the way in which academia changes so quickly you know the fact that it's about five years old may make it slightly less relevant um but it's an interesting topic, and I think that that's really what led me to where I am now in biotech is working um, with the greater, because uh, I don't only work for, well, I'm not working for cell signaling now, but as you, as you said earlier, is I've been a board member of um and which is Environmental Health Safety and Facilities, as well as Sustainability Working Group in the mass Bio community. And here's exactly you know the issue that got me into business in the beginning is that um, the amount of financial resources that are available within the greater uh, biotech community, especially in Boston, is immense. And um, it's not so much a competition between what company is doing more for STEM or the environment or for um, scholarships, but everyone is trying to do their best and they're trying to learn from each other in ways that they can, you know, minimize the amount of energy that their laboratories are using, not only to save money, but also to make um, climate change codes, but also to make new state zoning codes. So it's a trifecta benefit. And then they can uh, publicize some of these programs to try to get good clout on social media. So I was really glad to see the forward thinking progress of the biotech community here. Um, taking energy on behalf, taking, um, sorry, misspoke, taking uh, an initiative on behalf of energy and and environmental programs um, that other industries may say are not part of the bottom line because these do come as an extra expense. However, given the progressive situation of Cambridge Kendall square zoning policies, um, it does make financial sense because there's new building codes that require these energy efficiency guidelines and regulations for laboratory spaces, which I think your viewers will know are some of the most energy intensive um, means of, uh, of zoning. When you think of the negative 80 degrees uh, Celsius yeah. freezers, uh, the centrifuges, um, some of the cold walk-ins and yeah. um all the other um, fume hoods and air changes per hour that are, that are required yeah. to maintain a safe space.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, well, first of all, on the, on the subject of finding out that gem of a, of, a, of a
1: university to go to,
2: that's something that I was also very blessed to find from, from my point of view, obviously going to an applied biology program, just happening to find the, the, the one program that really was tailored to what I was looking for, and it's very interesting and almost I almost feel like I want to go back there for for a master's in business administration
0: you should
2: Uh, yeah (laughs) but yeah uh, yeah, I was I was going to say that in terms of the sustainability efforts that you now have been leading back uh, stateside I am actually also was curious to know a little bit more about your work with uh, uh, cell signaling technology but From my point of view, I actually met a couple of uh, people uh, from CST on campus when I was doing my PhD in San Diego. Uh, And actually, uh, I was really amazed by the types of um, uh, brochures and uh, uh, posters that you guys have made over the years. They're one of the most informative and uh, really well done as compared Mm -hmm. to a lot of the other uh, types of vendors. But having said that, one of the things that I've started to realize over the last couple of years, that a lot of um, resources are dedicated to providing this type of like swag, if you will, to uh, to re- uh, researchers, uh, you know, at conferences and things like that. So as a sustainability manager, like, have you had to deal with the, uh, with budgeting for these types of um, uh, things? And like, what's your stance of on these types of conference swag and, you know, spending paper and plastic mm-hmm. on uh introducing new members.
1: So I can give you the full story. So the reason why Cell Signaling Technology has invested so much um, time, resources, and and graphic design in some of their brochures is because they have a really strong commitment to arts. And um, they have a kind of a touring um, art gallery in which they support local artists, but also the former director of marketing in the early days, in the brother of the CEO, David Combe, who I worked for, is uh, very passionate about art and um, you know trying to map um, you know some of these complex cellular pathways in a way that was engaging and fun and colorful, um, rather than you know some of these very drab. I mean, and I've been working in biotech for several years, and I see the graphic layout. It's always light blue, white, gray backgrounds, Not a lot of time put into it. Um, because they're not really thinking about the art, they're not thinking about the production value. And on the one hand, you're doing this type of work is is expensive, um, but gosh, I've met people even playing in bands that I tell them I was working for Cell Signaling Technology and they say, hey, you guys have that awesome calendar. And I was like, yeah. Some hippie wrote this big thing at the beginning about the UN Climate Change Conference. He's like, oh yeah, I was like, oh, that was me. <laughs> so, um, you know, here's this guy who was, you know, playing in like a, um, a noise metal band who was working for Novartis. I mean, I just met him randomly, you know, and that really makes an impact. I see people at the tote bags, but on the sustainability front, self-signaling was one of the first companies to adopt um, essentially a biodegradable cooler. So rather than shipping their products in styrofoam, because, you know, we sold very small um, antibodies and just a couple um, microliters or nanoliters I'm sorry I'm getting the the measurement incorrectly Um, but we're talking uh, a lot of packaging for a very small product so uh, we had um, biodegradable coolers and also also printed our all of our marketing materials with the highest percentage um, feasible for um, post-consumer paper and also using soy inks Um, but but you know, anything that's created is, in a way, um, not sustainable, because you have to think about bleaching of paper and waste and all these things that are put out there. So obviously, digital is the most sustainable, but if someone's getting a lot of quality use out of that, it's not just like you know going to a career fair or going to a college fair, and people just bombarding you with all these leaflets that you don't use but creating something useful. I think cell signaling is doing a fantastic job creating useful infographics, you know, things that you wouldn't mind you know, putting on the wall in, in your bedroom or your workspace or- I um, had that, I in, have to know, say,
2: for three years of my PhD,
1: I had that poster from yeah. cell signaling technology on my, be- on my bench. But, it, but that's inspiring because it, it brings in the human element to what you're trying to work on. So we can say all we can about sustainability and printing, but Cell Signaling really did a fantastic job uh, on the environment. So I was hired as a sustainability coordinator, and kind of throughout the years became a sustainability program manager. And you know the ball was really in my court. Anything that I wanted to actively pursue, um, I could push. Not everything obviously was 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 um, enacted, um, but in 2016. I created a long-term plan that was voted on by the uh, Global Board of Directors, uh, also including China, Japan, the Netherlands, about a plan to meet the UN uh, climate change agreements as laid out in uh, the 2015 Paris Climate Accord. So essentially, it's a way of, you know, um, businesses to adopt means to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions in a way that would prevent global warming of two degrees Celsius. And how you do that is um, essentially trying to reduce your annual greenhouse gases by 3% year over year. So I created a plan that started with, um, you know, talking about um, energy efficient freezers, LED lighting, solar panels, and um, some other kind of smaller projects that we could do over the course of, of several years. And these were large capital expenses, you know, you know, for them to act as vigorously as they did the first project, being a large uh, solar panel um, installation for both facilities, is really, um, really quite impressive. Um, we maximized as much of the roof as we could for solar. Uh, there was some challenges because part of the roof was slate, so we couldn't put solar panels on it. Um, but it was a you know really ambitious program. Um, you know, towards the end of my tenure there, we were just finishing uh, LED lighting uh, for both facilities. And we had installed um, a technology that would um, close the fume hoods when they weren't open because we had the fume hoods open 24/7, 365. Uh, to be frank, it's because they renovated a very old facility. So Cell Signaling's headquarters used to be a hotel, and you know the infrastructure is quite old. But it was sustainable in the fact that they wanted to reuse a building. But when I go visit you know, the who's who of biopharma in Kendall Square, you know, it's new construction, everything's built to, um, you know, totally modern um, chillers and boilers and air handling units that can be dimmed down to very nothing and unoccupied and then ranch back up. We didn't have that level of space control. It's either, you know, the the air conditioning and the HVAC and the air circulation was going on at a certain rate or it wasn't. It'd stay on all the time. So, we're able to do is create um, um, a program that worked with uh, tell which is a, a British company and they have uh, fume hood controls which actually are on a lot of fume hood controls already they do some of the just the up down buttons um, but it was a optical drive that sensed whether someone was there and if they weren't there it would bring the fume hood down at the same time it had a damper within the ductwork that would uh, open or close dependent on the amount of air that was pre-programmed for the space with um, the ability to have a purge button in any sort of, you know, spill event. So it was really great because think about it, we were exhausting air at the rate of an of a occupied BL2 level space uh, 24-7, 365. And everyone likes to mm. think about, you know, highly visible projects like solar panels or electric vehicle charging, which we did, um, but something that had more of an impact was something you don't think about, just air changes. You know, I don't have air conditioning yeah. here, so my window's open, um, but heating, ventilation, and air conditioning are essentially the number one energy hog for businesses of all types, even more so for biotechnology because of um, you know, the risk of working with volatile organic compounds and chemicals um within certain lab spaces in order to meet um you know safety code that's actually it's super interesting like as i'm also starting to learn more
2: about uh the the impact that life science research has on the on the climate and in terms of sustainability the types of um uh, consumables that we use which rely on single use plastics as well as multiple pieces of equipment that have to run, as you say, twenty four seven and three sixty five, you know, days. Uh, I really b- believe like this is such a big push that life science, as a big, obviously, a uh, proponent of uh, reducing climate change, has to, you know, has to uh, push forward. And I think you're playing a big part of that. But I wanted to ask you this: like n- now, as we had the chance to speak a little bit further, you strike me as a person who has a natural curiosity to learn as much as possible about so many different things? Because you seem to be knowledgeable about so many different you know, aspects of our life and, and having a chance to work in different environments and uh, businesses and things like that. Like where did that
1: curiosity comes from? How And how do you satiate it, if you will? <laughs> so um, regarding natural curiosity and uh, attaining knowledge, I've always been interested in a lot of different things. I mean, when I was a kid, I was convinced that I wanted to be a geologist. Uh I started rock collections. I still collect rocks. Unfortunately, there's sometimes like a blessing and a curse of saying like um you know jack of all trades, master of none. Um there's certainly some padding that could do to make me, you know, more efficient in business, you know, like learning SAP and learning um you know certain programming languages. I think that the the you know, kind of business ecosystem is moving a lot more in, um, you know, computer science field, And I'm kind of rooted more in like the humanities, the public speaking, the operations, the stakeholder management, you know, securing funding and donations, um, you know, motivating staff, um, you know, rolling up my sleeves and getting in the, the air ducts and, you know, working outside with the contractors, making sure that projects are working. Um, but, I'm just always interested by the next thing. You know I never thought I wanted to, to go to China. I always thought I wanted to be an anthropologist, and living in China made me realize that doing any sort of social work would be uh, politically challenging, um, for obvious reasons, uh, with, with you know the situation there. But I think there's something to be said about naturally, being naturally curious, and I encourage people to read. And I know that sounds cliche, um, but you know again, talking about someone in my thirties, um, you know, when I was a high school sub, I was only twenty five I had just returned from China, and I was just aghast with the fact that kids just weren't reading, they didn't want to read. they had iPhones, and I was so glad that um, you know, i pretty much graduated college, and the only people who had iPhones were really you know the wealthy students you know it, it really bothers me that that young people aren't embracing reading as much and I think that um, reading is something I try to do every day and it's something that really keeps me learning about about the world even fiction you know you can you can you can really invest yourself into a character and then think about some of the things they're doing one of my favorite authors is Neil Stevenson um, I don't know if you're familiar with some of his work um, but but he writes in a way that kind of merges history with science fiction, uh, science fiction, technology, um, uh, cryptology and and um, things that that are really prescient. And when you, when you look and see how fast things have moved, I mean, I would have never thought that you know, we'd be talking about cryptocurrency in that. Um, you know, hacking and computer work would be what it was. I mean, the internet was awesome in 1996. You know, I played StarCraft. And then if it started raining, you know, I disconnect because I was connected to the phone line. And, you know, who would have thought that all these <laughs> things would, would have evolved so quickly. So I'm so glad to see life yeah. sciences, you know, caring about life, because I'm sure that, you know, during the growth years for a lot of these companies, they didn't have the financial resources to invest in you know some of these STEM programs for people of color or um, sustainability programs and caring about uh, energy and but now it's almost expected. People ask, "What's your CSR uh, portfolio?" Or you know, "Do you do social responsible investing?" Um, what's your diversity inclusion? What do you do about plastic waste? I mean, I've talked to Novartis and they have a plastic neutral standpoint. I mean, that's tremendous. And when you talk mm-hmm. about this, this is not like, you know, it's great that people are talking about straws, but we need to think about mm-hmm. the amount of plastics that are used in the production of something that's so small because everything is single-use plastics that come from Thermo Fisher or some of these other groups, not to single mm-hmm. them out. I mean, they're just part of the industry, VWR, we all do the same thing, um, is, you know, having a discussion. There's people having the discussion now in laboratories should we go back to autoclaves as a way to reduce plastic? Well, on the one hand, it uses more electricity and and resources. But hey, if you're in a state like California when which you have are required to have more um, energy efficiency, or if you're tapping into more renewable energy, um, you're not your like net impact of reusing that autoclave or you know, doing other means to try to reduce your single use, or just your sustainability impact in general, it really has a strong impact. And at the end of the day, you know, seeing life sciences care more about life and, um, you know, perhaps, I don't want to say less about profits because it's still an incredibly profitable industry, but this kind of growth and trajectory and corporate social responsibility is really exciting, and I'm glad to be part of it.
2: Yeah, so this is uh, this is a perfect opportunity to maybe jump into uh, what you're doing now, because now that you worked with Cell Signaling Technology, you have some experience under your belt in the sustainability area, mm-hmm. and we have a number of different uh, crises, if you will, that the world is experiencing. Uh, obviously, COVID nineteen. We have the the recent wave of you know protests going on, and. and but you also now joined a different company. So you had a lot of things to mull over over the last, I think maybe five or six months. So what is, what is, the, um, what is the state of mind that you are finding yourself now in? Do you think like we're as a world on the right trajectory in terms of these maybe trials and tribulations, if you will, are necessary to, inf- to, in- to induce change that is long overdue in our world in terms of addressing all these issues that you just mentioned?
1: I think uh, the, the greatest thing that we're seeing now is collaboration. So I won't speak so much on CSR right now because we talked about that, but we're, um, the work that I'm doing right now for, for Sanyo Bio, and, and keep in mind, it's, it's really just part-time, so it, it's not really a, a permanent position currently. However, I'm glad to, to be a part of it because what we're doing is trying to allocate resources in the most efficient way possible. So if you're doing an experiment, in Kendall Square in Massachusetts and you're in, in operations or facility um, manager has to think about how many people you have to employ you know what's your lab footprint what are you spending on on utilities and you can get that work done that would take you know eight to 12 months um, elsewhere and it could be done in China with with the same quality um, of the results because you know, it, the scientific method is pretty cut and dry for these types of things. I mean, um, doing a western blot, or doing antibody purification work, or um, you know, doing in, in vivo work with mice, or alpacas, or zebrafish, and um, there's really kind of like one method. This really isn't up to, you know, a wide degree of, of interpretation, because let's face it, China's not, you know, a factory country anymore. They've done a very good job outsourcing that to some of the other countries in Asia and and even building factories all over um, parts of Africa. They've really developed Africa in a way that the United States has similarly um, in South America several decades ago, perhaps with less degrees of success. But China's doing a very good job moving forward on a trajectory with science. And I think that it would be wrong to think of China as only a place for um, you know, mass production. I think that their investments in science and technology are unparalleled. There is not this like, left and right in the government saying we should do this or that. The government decides that science and technology is something that is incredibly important for the economy, incredibly important for the society, and incredibly important for the, healthy, the health and well-being of, of their citizens. And as such, um, seeing the growth of, um, we'll call them domestic Chinese um, biotech companies is really exciting because, um, you know, the company that they're working for has thrived just from the growth in providing um, research opportunities and contract research work within China. And they've had a couple of contracts internationally. And, and I'm in a position in which I can help that grow. So on the one hand, um, it's exciting to be part of something that's growing, but I see this as from, from working in, in facilities and operations as being a really excellent way to um, work more efficiently within your space. So if you're making a decision, if you need to make um, a capital expenditure to acquire um, you know, some very costly... Uh, lab equipment, or to hire a couple more uh, full-time employees to do types of work that can be done. It doesn't have to be in China; it can be, do, can be done anywhere. It's just a matter of outsourcing that work. I mean, outsourcing has been done, um, you know, since the beginning of capitalism, and um, it's basically just a way to focus your immediate efforts on the net result. And so if your immediate efforts is you know, creating a therapeutic antibody and you can focus more on fine tuning and have some of the uh, redundant trials, I shouldn't say redundant, but some of the more time consuming work being done elsewhere, you're eventually going to have more productive employees, higher morale and greater productivity within your workspace. And um, it's exciting to see you know, Sanyo be part of that. And they're also uh, actively working on uh, COVID-19 and Spike 2. I may have have said that incorrectly. Um, It's quite late. Uh, But um, they're actively working on antibody proteins. And um, they um, have been working with Hemlius Biotech and just uh, recently received funding from Hire. I don't know if you're familiar with the Hire group, H-A-I-E-R, but they're essentially like the uh, General Electric of China. I mean, I have a higher um, uh, refrigerator in my house here, um, and so their so medical, medical. their medical group is uh, actively uh, funding Sanyo Bio, and that's really exciting because I think it's going to open up a lot of doors. Yeah. So
2: as we wrap up our conversation today, I I feel like I want to. Uh, ask you the, the following question. Again, you are, seem to be a very naturally curious person. and You are actively striving to make a difference on so many different levels, specifically, yeah, truly in, in, um, in life sciences realm. And you have a, a depth of experience living and working in different countries, including in China. So what kind of feedback do you have when you interact with people Uh, Here in in America, and when you and especially where you bring all these different ideas and know how from all of your you know very multicultural and professional experience, do you see a lot of pushback, or do you see the embrace of ideas coming from China, from Germany? Like, what's the is there a synergy there to the ideas that you bring to the table, or there is maybe still some resistance uh, in terms of adoption of these technologies and
1: approaches? There's certainly a strong degree of structuralism within the life sciences, insofar as the science, the hard science. I think the ways that the companies are organizing, reorganizing, structuring, destructuring, you know, the the chain of command and reporting is very fluid. And that's really exciting because it thinks about the natural tenets of ecology, of evolutionary biology, of you know, of scientists who are kind of rethinking structural organization within their ecosystem for maximizing productivity. So I think that there is a high degree of flexibility there. I think that um, people are open to new HR policies, um, to improving workplace wellness and sustainability and the fact that um, employers certainly in North America are trying to highlight um, you know their STEM and social responsibility programs and Um, you know, sponsoring nonprofit work and things like that. uh, I think that's very exciting. What I do think that the biotechnology industry as a whole needs to work on is uh, obviously um, some of the uh, FDA and kind of uh, regulations that are working that kind of dictate, um, you know, drug price. I mean, I don't want to sound like Bernie Sanders again, um, but I think that there are a lot of um, biotech executives who who've gone on record in saying that the drug prices are unsustainable for the industry, because at some point, um, you know, certainly not in this administration, but in the future, I think we're going to see um, wholesale um, healthcare reform, and I think that drug pricing and uh, some of the um, costs that go into R and D and development is really going to have a ripple effect. Uh, throughout the biotechnology sector, and I think that groups that are future-proofing, um, you know, their business model to deal with that, and um, you know, to be working, um, yeah, maybe on one hand in R and D, maybe some on diagnostics and therapeutics, um, but there's groups that have completely moved into horizontal integration into completely different groups, like they're doing medical device manufacturing now because. Why not, (laughs) you know, and um, it's interesting. I mean, certainly you have these large umbrella groups like Merck and Bayer and, um, you know, um, some of the other groups in the United States like, um, oh gosh, VWR, Thermo Fisher, who are kind of, their hands are in so many different um, industries that it's hard for, you know, a startup to think what their niche is. Because if a, if a company like Thermo Fisher can say, oh, you have a great idea for this new um, laboratory widget, we can make it for one thirty seventh of the price. And by the way, our production rate is, you know, X, Y, Z. And I know that sounds, you know, kind of totalitarian, but I do think that um, the having healthy competition is good. And it is a bit alarming when you see so many mergers and acquisitions happen, especially in a small geographic space. Um, Shire just merged with Takeda. and you know mm-hmm. that impacts people's livelihoods. You know, not everyone was retained in that. And after that merger happened, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, we were put into this kind of COVID quarantine situation. Um, I was unemployed um, when this hit, so you know, I'm doing part-time work. Uh, but I, I think that it's a it's a more aggressive industry um, than maybe it was, but that's just the nature of the way that uh, these businesses are evolving worldwide. And I am glad to see, on the one hand, the embracing of more life and life sciences, and I do see shows of of, of CEOs that are really interested in. Um, in healthcare reform in a way that almost seems antithetical to them being CEOs of large biopharma companies that, that really depend on high drug prices to thrive. Um, but at the end of the day, it's currently not sustainable from a financial and from uh, you know, human holistic health centered perspective. Yeah,
2: I think there's a lot of work that that will definitely need to be done and I think researchers across life science industry, biotech industry are well equipped of trying and failing and coming up with new solutions. As long as they keep innovating, I think there is there's is hope for the horizon. I think COVID-19 is definitely an instigator of a lot of those changes to adapt to new business models, diversification of uh, the streams of revenue that these companies will be pursuing going forward and I think drug pricing will certainly be reevaluated going forward, especially if we are in this recession type of area. So I think this, this change mm-hmm. is, is that you speak of that will definitely happen. And I think we're maybe witnessing some of the beginnings of that massive wave of uh, adoption uh, to, the, to the new norm, if you will, going forward. So thank you very much, Eliza. I really appreciate you taking time to speak with me today. It has been amazing. Amazing. And, and I really hope to, to pick your brain a little bit further. I think you have a number of great ideas and uh, I would be honored to have you as a guest for one more time. Thank you. Great. Take
1: care.